We are going to be continuing with our teaching from the book of First John. I have been informed that this is our eighth. Um, this is our eighth teaching, our eighth lesson. The manual says seven. That's a bit of an error. It's it's the eighth part, and we will be looking at the book of First John, chapter three, and we'll be. We'll be examining verses 1 to 10. 1 John chapter 3, and we will be examining from verses 1 through 10. Are we there? I would like us to read together. First John chapter 3, from verse 1 to 10. Are we there? Okay. Okay, I'd like us to read together on the count of three. One, two, go. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. And ye know that he is manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Amen. Amen. Okay. It was a little disjointed, but got there in the end. Uh, I would like us to... I'd like to give a bit of a background. I know we looked at this a bit when we started the entire teaching but i think it's incredibly important especially as we go further into it so history tells us that the book of first john was written between 95 and 100 a.d that was the first century essentially of the church uh it was a period in which things were beginning to change slowly most of the apostles had died in the 60s they died in the 60s, 60s, so on and so forth. Paul died around that time. 
James had died a lot earlier. All of these people were dead. John was the last surviving disciple. And it was in the latter stage of his life and ministry that he wrote the epistles, First uh, John, Second John, and Third John, and also the book of Revelation. Now, this was a very interesting period uh, because Christianity was really beginning to expand. And because Christianity was beginning to expand, it was reaching places that it had never reached before. And Christianity was encountering a problem which was very familiar to it, but it was in a new dimension. And this was the problem of, you know, heresy in that various teachings were coming in. And this is something that is pretty common. Anything that expands wide enough, you'll find that impurities will start to get into it. Uh, a common example is the English language. You have the English language that is spoken by most people around the world, but the reality is that the, the bigger it has gotten, the more cultures have embraced it, we are starting to see changes. You know, words that meant something a while ago no longer mean the same thing. Uh, back in the 1500s or so, if you said someone was nice, you are saying that the person is an imbecile, the person is an idiot. But if we say nice today, we'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, nice person. That's, that's good. That's admirable. So we see the English language has evolved essentially to kind of like accept what everyone has done. And of course, in Nigeria, we have things like Pidgin English, uh, which is also spoken in some areas in Portugal and Brazil and so on and so forth. So we saw something like this happening in Christianity in which a lot of people were starting to put little little things in there. You start to have different kinds of schools. You had the Gnostics, you, um, you had the Aryans, you had all of these people who were, you know, putting in certain, who were essentially teaching another gospel. And if you read the book of First John, you can't get away from the theme of identity. John talked a lot about this is how to identify a believer. This is how to identify someone who is not a believer. And this was incredibly important because Many of these people who were teaching the wrong thing were doing it from a point of view whereby they were claiming that they were better somehow, that they knew more, that they had knowledge. For instance, the Gnostics, their name comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So there was a lot of feelings of um, superiority in what they know, the fact that they know more. And then the true believers were somehow inferior somehow. And... You can imagine how this was for a young church or a growing church, which had essentially only one apostle that was directly connected to Jesus still alive. So that's why the testimony of John at the very beginning where he said that we are saying these things not because we heard them from somewhere else. It's not hearsay. This is things that I saw, I witnessed, I experienced, I walked with Jesus, I talked to him, and I am able to point you to the way. This was what was going on. And it was a period in which it was difficult to tell who was a believer, who was not a believer, because everyone was just, you know, imbibing all kinds of, they're imbibing irresponsible lifestyles. Uh, it reminds me of one of the most interesting parts of the book, Animal Farm by George Orwell, the very last page where he says, um, the creatures outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again. But already, it was impossible to say which was which. And I remember when I read that when I was younger, I thought, I thought to myself, from my young perspective, I was like, how, how would a pig and a man, how, how did they look alike? But 
we get what they were trying to say there was the fact that like the pigs had imbibed so much of human culture that was really almost impossible to tell which was which and we saw something like that happening in christianity back then and it's something that is very real to us today it's a very real it's a very real thing it's a very real threat it is true that we are getting to a point in our lives that a lot of people will tell you that everyone is just the same. A lot of people will tell you that you are just to love everybody the way everybody loves everybody. And because of that, there's really nothing that sets you apart. There's nothing that puts you at any other angle. You're simply just, oh, the Bible tells you you're just to love everybody. The Bible tells you you're just to love, 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 love. And we are also all about love and everybody's all about love. So, you know, there's nothing different in what you're doing. No matter the religion, no matter the, in quotes, no matter it is that, whatever it is that you are serving, you are all serving the same God. There is no difference between us. It's something that you see a lot of. I, I believe, I'm not just speaking for myself. Am I the only one that is noticing this? No? Okay. Because you see it everywhere. I, I, saw, I saw a YouTube video a while ago and um, a very prominent individual was talking about what he called his faith. And he said that, you know, he believes that, you know, God made all of us in his image and that he loves every single one of us. And therefore, he believes that there is no, um, there is no right or wrong way in which to connect with him. And he used this analogy. And when he used the analogy, I was, um, I was a little worked up. But he said that it's essentially like a, it's like having a huge cable, um, a huge cable TV. You switch on the TV and there are several channels, but they are all providing entertainment of some form or the other. Whether it's whether you get your entertainment through news, whether you get it through music, whether you get it through any way, shape, or form, the fact is that you are all being entertained as long as the TV is on. And that was the example he gave, and he likened that to religion and believing in God. Of course, I disagree. But the reality is that there are several people who agree with this standpoint. And this was what was going on in John's time. Therefore, it was very necessary for John to write a letter telling people, explaining to them who they were in God and how they were different from everybody else. And that was the backdrop of the book of First John. And we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first three verses which I called the adoption from the great orphanage. Uh, verses 1 to 3 reads, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God. Therefore the world knew us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Amen. So, the first word here says, behold. Many other versions will say see, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, I find that very interesting, because what it was telling us once more, when it says someone should see, it means that there is evidence of something, right? If I say see, so if I if I go to start there and I say see my new outfit, the idea is that there's something that has changed. There is something for her to see. Or if I run up to my wife and I say, "Oh, see this new musical band I like listening to," 
The idea is that there is something there for her to see. So when the Bible tells us that, behold, the manner of love the Father had bestowed upon us, it's telling us that it is something that we can see. It is palpable in our lives. Now, the term God loves you has become so, I don't know, it's diluted. It's bandied around. Almost like this term, I love you, you know. We use the term love so flippantly, so easily, that sometimes, you know, you're walking you're walking on the road and someone not hits into you and you're angry and then the person is yelling at you and you're saying, well, you know, Jesus loves you. And or someone comes into the office and the person is just walking and maybe the person isn't particularly smiling and you just say, smile, Jesus loves you. You know, that's a very popular one that people like to say. And uh, which is not to say it's bad, but the reality is that more often than not, they're just saying it. It's just stuff that they are saying that oh they smile Jesus loves you they smile Jesus loves you but the reality is that what they want from me at that moment is for you to smile but more often than not there is no thought behind what comes next which is that Jesus loves you God loves us and the reality of God's love for us is that God does God does His love for us He doesn't just He doesn't simply say it so the Bible um, a lot of people would say. I love you in word. A lot of people will say, oh, I love you. I love everyone. I love everybody. Uh, it's all love. It's all love. It's something that you hear commonly. But the reality is that a lot of people do not actually act any of this out. God is different because if God is telling us to show love to one another, he is not the kind of God who would say and not do. So God has already done this love. And how did he do this love? He did it by sending his only begotten son to die for us tells us that in John 3, 16, Bible tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was something that he did. He bestowed it upon us, meaning that it wasn't anything that we earned. We didn't earn this love. It was bestowed upon us. When you see the word bestowed, the idea that you get, the connotation that it, what it suggests is that what has been bestowed upon the person is not something that the person necessarily did anything for or even deserves. So you say that, oh, I, dis- I bestowed this honor on this particular individual, then it means that, oh, okay, it's something that you gave on the person because you just wanted to give to the person. Or I bestowed this inheritance upon my children. It's not the fact that the children had done anything. I mean, if, if we are familiar with children and babies, you know that they are the most lazy human beings in the entire world. They, they don't have jobs, but they ensure that they suck you dry. So, however, we still bestow love upon them. And it's the same way with God. God has bestowed this great love upon us, even though we don't necessarily deserve it. But he has. And how did he do so? The Bible tells us in the book of John, First John, um, John chapter 1, sorry, I mean, he said that for as many as believe in him, he gave the power to become sons of God. The evidence that God loves us, the evidence that we can see that God loves us is the fact that we can now call ourselves his children. I call this the adoption from the great orphanage. It's like we're all in an orphanage. Dirty, pathetic, tattered clothing. And this glorious, glorious individual walks in and says, I want to adopt. I want to adopt them all. 
and then we are adopted and then we bear his name. And suddenly we are sons. We are no longer simply individuals. We are no longer simply people who just did whatever it is. The Bible tells us in the book of Hosea, um, chapter 1, God told the prophet that he should go and marry a woman of promiscuity. His wife's name was Goma. We don't know much about um, Prophet Hosea, apart from the fact that what he had to do. And sometimes, you know, I read it recently and I, and I thought to myself, how the amount of pain involved in marrying a woman who is well known for her promiscuity. And the Bible tells us that it wasn't simply to marry a wife of promiscuity, it was also to have children of promiscuity, which means that children in which people would, there are always the question marks over the children's heads. Over the fact that, is he really the dad? Is it? Is it him? Is it? Is it really him? There could be someone else. And that was what happened. And God told Prophet Hosea to name the children, at least two of the children. Um, the children were called Jezreel, uh, Loruhama, and Luami. And the last two meant no compassion. And the last one, which is Luami, means not my people. That's what he meant. But, and that's how we are, or that's how we were, so to speak, where people who had no compassion, because we don't have the ability to love. And we're Luamin, because we're not his people. But even in, in the book of um, Hosea chapter 2 and Hosea chapter 3, God said that he's going to gather these people back onto himself, and they will no longer not be his people. And he would always, he will continue to have compassion over them. And in chapter 3, the very beginning, he told Hosea to go back to his wife, to love the woman who is loved by many men. And he went back. And God has shown us such a great love. It's why the psalmist said that, what is man that you are mindful of him? If you consider the creations of God as a human being, I do not think I am the most impressive when I think of all the amazing things God has done, I watch documentaries on space. I watch documentaries on so many things that God has created, the fauna and the flora and so many things. And there are just so many creatures of unimaginable excellence and beauty and amazingness. And, I, and you just have to sit down and wonder to yourself, okay, what's so special about the human? Yes, we can think. Sure. Sure. There are so many other things. But somehow, the greatest entity that exists and has ever existed and will ever exist deems it fit to love us. And that is huge. That is so huge that it makes us so excited. And then we become disappointed. Why? Because the world doesn't know. They don't get it. The Bible tells us in, uh, it tells us in that same verse 1, he said that, therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. The world doesn't know you. The moment you give your life to Christ, the Bible tells us that you became a new creature. All things have passed away. What that means is that you're a new creature, yes, but sometimes you also have to consider that you're not simply new to yourself and to God. You're also new to everyone around you. Meaning that the person who they're encountering is not someone they've ever dealt with before. And therefore... When you start to act Christ-like, they find it weird. They don't get it. And because of that, you're hated, you're despised. 
But there's nothing to worry about because Jesus was hated and despised too. The Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, uh, you can mark it down, tells us that they would not have crucified Jesus if they had known who he was. If they had known that this was their savior, they would not have crucified him. And it's the same with us. They don't know who we are. They don't know that we are kings, we are priests. It's like the old movie, uh, Coming to America. I don't know how many of us have seen that. I also believe everyone. It's a bit of a classic. I never watched the sequel. I don't think that matters. But the first part, it was always very interesting because you had this prince who had all the privilege, who had everything, and they wanted to find him a wife. So they told him he should travel somewhere and go and find a wife. He decided to go to America, and he checked the map, and he saw a place called Queens, and thought to himself that, oh, you know, if there's a place called Queens, that means there must be a lot of regal and royal people in there. Poor man couldn't be more wrong. But he went there anyways. And the reason I mentioned this is because he got there and then no one knew who he was. He was a prince in Zamunda, but here he was just some dude. And after a while, he was mopping floors. And you think he was ah. And the person that had the biggest problem with it was his aide, who was always beside him. And I was like, why are you, you you're a prince? Why are you mopping floors? And he said, no, no, no. He wants to find his wife and he has to be humble. He has to act. He has to live uh, a humble life. He has to live in humility. And we find something similar in our situation whereby we're in a world where no one gets you. And I want to tell you today, it's not going to get better. No one is going to get you because they didn't get Jesus either. And because they didn't get him, they're not going to get you. Why? Because we are like him. And we are trying more and more every single day to become more and more like him. Verse 2 tells us that, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now. Not in some unseen future. We are not going to become children of God. We are not in a situation whereby... It is when we um, complete the forms and we go through the trials and we go through the tests and everything. Then I say, ah, my son, you've gone through everything. You can now be my child. No. The Bible tells us that now we are the sons of God. And he says that, and and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him we shall see him as he is this talks about our heavenly promise about the fact that after we leave here we are going somewhere and the reason it is important that john mentions this explaining that what we will be is not yet revealed is the fact that so many of us want to know if you ask anyone to ask a question about bible or biblical theology or anything Their biggest interest is eschatology. Oh, how are we going to be in that place? How are we going to be in heaven? How are we going to be living? And some people worry themselves about this. Is there going to be football? Are there going to be movies? Is there going to be some form of entertainment? Some people have even rejected Christianity based on that, in the fact that, well, if all we're going to be is righteous and holy, it must be boring. I don't want to be there. And here he's telling us that we don't know exactly how we are going to be, 
But we do know one thing for sure is that we'll be more like Jesus because we'll finally see Jesus as he is. What he's telling us that is that we are to have a hope that even if we don't have it all figured out, we should know that the God that we serve always has something better for us. When I was younger, I had a father figure who told me that um, if I passed my exams, he would take me on a trip to the UK. And it was a very common promise that they used to give to children back then. I write you, pass your exams, travel to travel to London, travel abroad, and all of that. And I was so excited. Oh my God, UK, UK, UK. Never seen UK in my life at the time. Because, I mean, we grew up in Nigeria, so most of our entertainment is American. So we've seen America. You know, probably seen America on TV, seen Thatcher Liberty and everything. There aren't as many English programs or shows or anything that would depict English life. But it just sounded great. Go to the UK or travel abroad or be somewhere different or be somewhere new. I didn't need to know what the UK looked like. I didn't need to know. In fact, if I had known, probably I'd have thought twice about it because the weather is always dreary. But the reality is that I didn't have to know, but I was excited nonetheless because my, the father figure had told me that he was going to take me there. And I believed in him that he wasn't going to just take me to some place that was just anyhow. He wasn't going to take me to some place that made no sense. No, he was going to take me to somewhere amazing. So when Jesus says that I am going to go and prepare a place for you, I think it is safe to say that you are not going to a boy's quarters with a single pillow and a single bed. But I have something incredible and amazing prepared for you. And verse 3 says that, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. We are told to expect. We are told to hope on the coming of Jesus Christ. It has been said several times on this altar that one of the biggest deficiencies of the church is the deficiency of hope. Not many people are looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. A lot of people say they are. But not many are. A lot of people will tell you that ah, heaven is the goal, heaven is the goal, heaven is the goal. But they don't live lives that say that heaven is the goal. A lot of people will tell you that ah, they're tired of this life and everything. But if you told them that, okay, which one would you prefer? Would you prefer to go to heaven now? Or would you want to, do you want to live the next 10 years and then you would make a hundred million tomorrow and then you'll be able to spend a hundred million between now and that 10 years and then you can finally go to heaven? Trust me when I say most people will go for the latter. So many people. There is a lack of expectation of heaven in the lives of so many individuals today. But what we are being taught here is the fact that that very hope, that burning desire, that burning desire to travel to England made me really work hard at my exams. I think I was fourth. can't remember. I think that was my highest placing in primary school. I would not lie to any of you. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't first. 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 A lot of people like that. I made fourth once. After fourth, I was usually in top ten. To be fair, but made. I made fourth once. But I worked hard, and it's the same thing with the believer. Is the fact that it is that hope that we are going somewhere better, the hope that there's something better beyond this life, that makes us screw our head on straight. And live a life that is worthy of that new place. When you don't believe that there is anything better than this. 
A lot of people believe in an afterlife. A lot. If you tell someone that, is this where it all ends? Probably not. I, I think there's something more. Okay, what is this something more? Most people can't. They can't imagine, can't picture it. There's no hope for it. It's just simply a fact. Just a thing that, oh, I just know, Sha. And because they don't just know, Sha, they don't think that there's anything they have to do to make it work out. Because they just feel like, well, there's some kind of afterlife. It probably won't end, but whatever as the case may be. It's a, it's a common thing you see. If a celebrity dies, um, they, there's this thing that they always do that whenever I see it, I kind of shake my head a bit and I'm like, ah, if only. You know, they would. They always would have this um, picture of clouds, the pearly gates, and then they have all the other celebrities somehow waiting for him. All the other celebrities have died, and then they'll be like, "Oh, they're welcoming him. They're welcoming him. Welcoming you to where? Like where though? Like how? How does that work?" But but I'm being told here that it's the hope in Christ. The hope that he's going to take us home. The hope that we are going to see him as he is. Not as a lowly servant that was despised by everyone. But as a mighty king with blazing eyes of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth as the book of Revelation tells us. We'll see Jesus as he is. What more? We'll be able to see Jesus in all of his glory and we won't have to die. Because that's what happens to anyone who is... Who, they say if you see God, we've seen God, we die. We'll be able to see Jesus as he is and we'll become more and more like him. And that is an exciting message and it's something that should excite us, that should spur us on. Even as we stay in this world, even as we live in this life. Uh, I'd like us to continue and we'll be looking at, we'll be looking at uh, from verse 4 to verse 6 which says that whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Sin, sin has been... Sin has been watered down. There is, we have been taught too many times that, you know, we've seen sin in so many other ways. We've seen sin as a mistake. We've seen sin as a natural inclination of the human. You know, that, oh, that's when they tell you things like, but you know, be firewood. Or, you know, you're yeah, just human. You know, it's something you just have to do. And all of that. But sometimes we need to tell it as it is which is that sin is law-breaking. Um, other versions will tell you that um, it's, instead of saying transgression, it's to use the term lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness because there is a divine law that has been established. It's one, of the, it's one of the arguments. It's one of the arguments that apologetics use or apologists use for the Christian faith because they will ask you that, okay, do you believe in a moral law? And most people will be like, well, yes, I believe in a moral law because, you know, we're supposed to be good, we're supposed to live good lives, we're supposed to do good to people, we're supposed to help people, we're supposed to be kind, and so on and so forth. And it's okay. If you believe in a moral law, then it only makes sense that there has to be a moral law giver because these moral laws do not come from 
a vacuum. It didn't come from space. It came from somewhere. But I digress. The reality is that God has created a law, a way for us to live, which we find in his word. And if we go against it, we have become law breakers. It's as simple as that. We have become law breakers. And the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, I think we should turn there real quick and have a read. It's one of the popular passages of scripture. The Bible tells us, Not every man that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Amen. Other versions will say that, um, depart from me, uh, you lawbreakers. Because at the end of the day, when we sin, we break the law. We are lawbreakers in that sense. We are lawbreakers. And John here is pointing at something very basic, but also something very, very important. Is giving sin the name that it deserves to be called, which is lawlessness. Even the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness. So essentially a man of sin. But in Jesus Christ, because the Bible mentions in verse 5, it said that you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin. So if we are hoping to live a life of victory over sin, then the answer is very simple and it's in verse 6. It said, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. If we abide in Jesus Christ, in whom there is no sin. And we find in scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and Isaiah 53, verse 5, where it tells us about the sinlessness of Jesus. The fact that he was sinless, there was no guile, there was no, there was no impurity found in him or in his mouth. And if we are believers and we want to live lives in which we have victory over sin and lawlessness, then we have to live in, we have to abide in Jesus Christ. We have to abide in him. We cannot do it by ourselves. That's what he's trying to say, that Jesus came to take away that sin. He came to take away that lawlessness. And it's only through him that we can have victory over that lawlessness. A lot of people will tell you that you don't need Christ to be morally good. You don't need Christ to be morally upright. And at best, at best, you might be able to achieve a sliver of morality. There are some people who would do good works and say that yes, they're doing good works and so on and so forth. But the reality is that we cannot defeat sin without Jesus Christ. A lot of people think that with willpower, Perhaps they can do it. Some people think that if they, if they are disciplined enough, that they will be able to do it. But what they miss, the point that they miss, is the fact that we are sinful by nature. We cannot do anything about it. It's a natural 
code written in the natural human to sin. Therefore, if we do not have a reset, a transformation, then we cannot live above what we believe to be normal. A lot of people do not see sin as lawlessness. And because they don't see sin as lawlessness, they see sin as all sorts of things. They see it as a mistake. They see it as an ideological difference. They see it as all sorts of other things. And because of that, they can't live above it because they don't see it for what it is, which is the enemy. It is lawlessness. And without Christ who came to take it away, we cannot live above it. Therefore, we have a responsibility to cling to cling to what is good. The Bible tells us to cleave to that which is good. To hold on to it as if our lives depend on it. To hold on to this Jesus Christ because he's the only one through which we can, we can survive. We can get past the sin that has been written in the DNA of every individual from the very beginning. And I'll read verse 7 to verse 10. Which says that little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteous is not is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. There's something I call the great deception that is that has covered the entire world. Human history never really changes. It always goes in cycles. So what that means is that essentially a lot of the problems that we are facing today were faced back then, even in the time of John. The problem of heresy, the problem of the misinterpretation of scripture, the problem of another gospel being preached to the people of God. They're not new problems. They're very, very old problems. And the reason they remain problems is because they're so successful. They're so effective against those who do not believe or who do not follow Christ as they should. It tells us not to be deceived because there is a deception. It tells us not to be deceived. It says that he that doeth, he that doeth righteousness is righteous, and he, even as he is righteous. Something we are being taught a lot nowadays is the removal of moral absolutes, is the removal of black and white. Everything is gray. Everything is relative. When we talk about the concept of moral absolutes, a lot of people reject it. Why? Because they will tell you that based on the circumstances and the situations. For the longest time in my life, I never quite knew where to categorize the character of Robin Hood. Big problem. Never quite understood. Why? Because as a child, I watched this hero run around, rob people, this guy is robbing people, but no, he carries it to the poor and he serves them and he gives them and then they're able to eat and they're thanking him and they're jumping up and down and they're like, oh, so he's good. 
it puts in that moral ambiguity because you're like there are no moral absolutes and it's it's a it's a picture of our world today that depending on the time and place in which we do something and the circumstances in which they are done it might not be wrong it might not be wrong if you cheat an individual but because of that you're able to help the poor it's not that wrong it's one of those big issues I used to work as a, a social media manager for a celebrity once, and I was running his um, I was running his Instagram page, and he told me he was like, "Oh, Femi, I want you to post this song. You know, it's a song called Maga No Need Pay. It was quite popular back then. So he said, "Oh, post it on my state, um, post it on my Instagram feed, and you know, just write a bit something about you know how it's not good." to be a cyber fraudster and so on and so forth so i put up the song and in all my time working for him i had never been so upset depressed and hopeless like i felt so hopeless because that particular post had like 300 comments like he would put a normal picture and you see maybe uh, 20 comments of people saying oh you look good look at you today oh fine boy baby boy so on and so forth i don't know but this video had like 300 comments people coming in some would say ah boss thank you for speaking out and then you see the other comments that were going like but the politicians the politicians, why are you not facing those ones? Why are you facing these young boys that are just trying their best? Or they'll tell you that, oh, at least these ones are bringing money from outside the country and they're putting it within the economy. So because they're putting it within the economy, then it's somehow okay. You, things like that, you had, the, you had the weird, yes, you had the weirdest takes and points. People are saying, ah, you, you don't help anybody. Uh, or is it not politicians that are always, you know, serving you and doing this and doing that? And this is not the only example. You see, it's all over the world. In so many instances, they've told us that we are to accept grays. We are to accept different kinds of hues. So a person lives a certain way and like, ah, oh, no, you can't look at the person this way. Look at what they went through. Or they'll tell you that, oh, it's okay to hate because... What you've gone through, it's not invalidated. It means something. And so you need to hold on to that hate because it validates what you went through. How? But that's the world we live in today. The world that celebrates this. It's a great deception. It's a great deception of telling you that there is no real right or wrong. There is no real right or wrong. If you love everybody as you should, or just love people, Accept them, affirm them, be kind to them, lift them up, as they would say. If you do all of this, it is fine. It doesn't matter if you live in sin. In fact, the idea of holiness is thoroughly rejected nowadays because they'll say it's stifling to the individual. Why would you want to place a person in a box to live up to impossible standards? They'll say society standards. Don't live by what society says that you should live by. Don't walk the way society tells you to walk because you're an individual. You're the star of your own story. Therefore, you have to write your own history and forge your own path. Define your own terms. Walk your own path and you'll get there as long as you just keep true to who you are. 
keep true to your, your very nature, everything will be okay. It's a big lie. And it's the great deception here. That is what John is pointing us to. He told us that let no man deceive you. Let no one blind your eyes. Let no one, let no one give you poison. The person who does righteousness is righteous. The person who does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous, even as Jesus, our pattern, is righteous. Therefore, it does two things. Number one, it shows us exactly what, what the black and white is. And it also tells us that we have a responsibility to do. Because it says here that he that doeth righteousness, not him that professeth righteousness, not him that saith righteousness, but he that doeth righteousness. John was, was, has been very preoccupied and was very preoccupied in this very epistle about being able to identify the children of God and the children of the devil. Because it was a big problem for them back then. It was a huge problem. People could not tell the difference because people were, everyone was just living as they pleased. It was almost like the book of Judges where he said that uh, and every man just did as was right in his own eyes. And we're in danger of falling into, um, well, I think in danger is being kind. We've more or less already fallen into such a situation now that like every man should just do as they see fit. But that is not the life of a believer. The life of a believer tells us that we are to do righteousness because he that committed sin is of the devil. He that doeth righteousness is of God. It's clear. It's being made clear. So that he that committed sin is of the devil. And he said that for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Sinneth from the beginning. This is not new. The devil, the devil has always been a sinner. He has been sinning from the very beginning. And anyone who sins essentially is portraying the same fruits that the devil is portraying. A couple of verses before, it tells us that like, as we abide in Jesus... He's the one who took away the sins. And therefore, if we abide in him, we would not sin. So if we sin, that means we are abiding in the devil. And when we abide in him, we will sin because he sinneth from the beginning. So no one should deceive us. No one should deceive us that when they do bad works, as long as they are accepting, as long as they love everybody, then somehow it's okay. No one should deceive us that people who are acting in obvious interest for the devil and the things that he wants to do in this life are somehow okay because there are moral gray areas in this situation. The Bible continues and it tells us here that for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Sin and lawlessness. So those are his works. And Jesus came to destroy those works. He came to break us free from that yoke. And he continues to say, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So like I said earlier, when I said that any, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And I told you that like you're not only new to in front of God, you're not only brand new, you're not only tabula rasa before him, they're also tabula rasa for the entire world. They don't get you either. You're also new to them. They don't get it. 
because there's a new seed in operation. There's something new in us. There's something that has transformed us and make us live differently. Therefore, we have to exhibit those characteristics of one who is renewed and reborn and transformed. That's why, you know, um, I don't know if you've ever gotten in trouble, maybe when you were younger in secondary school, you got into some trouble and then you're in the counselor's office and you'll say, ah, I, I, I know, I know Mr. David, I know him very well. He's a very, very nice man. He's a very nice man. Are you, are you sure? Are you sure you're his child? Because I know, I know Mr. David is a very gentleman. Don't, you don't behave like him at all. And that's the reality of a lot of believers. A lot of believers will be like, are you sure you're a child of God? Because you clearly don't believe. You don't behave like one. You don't behave like one. If we are born of God, we do not commit sin. This does not mean that we cannot commit sin. It doesn't mean that we cannot stumble. Because this very same book, in chapter 1 verse 8, tells us that anyone who says that he hath no sin is a liar. And that was some of the problems that they were facing back then. There were people then who were saying that they are in Christ, they cannot sin. That there is, a, there is a possibility of a life in which there is absolutely no sin in their lives. But it's a lie. Because when we look at the interpretation of what this verse is telling us, it's telling us that this is the life of one who remains in sin, who lives in sin, who decides to stay in the mud. It's one thing to be walking along the road, step into a puddle, jump out of it and go and wash your clothes. It's another thing for you to step into the puddle and just be like, you know what? I think I'll just sit inside and just be here to be fine. Let the water mess around with me and let the rain fall. So if we are born of God, we don't commit sin because the seed of Christ the seed of God remains in us because we are born of God. We have not been born of him. The Bible tells us that um, he that is born, born of the spirit, um, he that is born of the spirit, his spirit, we, we have a new nature. We have a new lifestyle. And therefore, we are encouraged. We are admonished to continue living in that way. Verse 10 says that in this, the children of God are manifest and the children of, of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteous, who doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. In the world that we live in today, they pit love and righteousness against one another. That somehow, you know, you can, you can love but not necessarily be righteous. And that somehow is okay. That works. That overrides. But the truth of the matter is that love and righteousness work hand in hand. We cannot do one without the other. We cannot hope to be righteousness without having love. And we cannot hope to truly love without being righteous. And therefore, if we are unable to exhibit these characteristics, if we are unable to exhibit these patterns in our lives, then we cannot truly call ourselves children of God because we have a new seed. Not that we cannot sin at all. The difference now is that we have a predisposition not to sin. As the natural man cannot do without sinning, the, regen the regenerate man cannot do without fellowshipping with the Father. 
And when we cannot do without that, it will always continue to renew us. I mentioned here when we were looking at um, John chapter 1, First uh, John chapter 1, that Christianity is a religion of constant repentance. The very life, the very essence of Christianity is constant repentance because we keep going again and again and again because we can never reach that perfection. It doesn't happen. Uh, I, watch, I watch a lot of football and I follow my team. Uh, and when they buy players, I'm excited. Oh, they bought this new player, so maybe they'll be great this season. And they do well that season. And they bought all the players they need. But the reality is that by the time the season ends, I can always tell you that, ah, we need a new right back. We need a new goalkeeper. We need a new this. We need a new that. Because at the end of the day, that's just how it is. There's always something to get better at. And therefore, we live a life of constant repentance. So even as we close tonight, just want to encourage us once more that we are children of God, and we are children of God now. It's not a future um, entity. It's not, it's not upon maturity you shall then become the son of God. No. We are children of God now. We are living with him now. And we should, we should stand proud and humble at this great privilege. Proud because we're the son of the greatest entity that has ever existed and will ever exist. It's an amazing thing. If you watch any of these movies whereby some boy on the streets, they suddenly find out that, oh, he's actually royalty. You know, if you watch The Prince and the Pauper or any of these other stories, you'll find out that, oh, maybe someone who was on the streets, they suddenly find out that he's royalty. It's such a great thing. It's such an exciting thing that you're, you're the son of a king. And we are. It's not something to puff us up. It's something to incredibly humble us. Because again, like I said, greatest entity ever has somehow deigned it fit to call us children. And we should walk in that victory. We should walk in that victory even though the world will never understand it. We should walk in that victory even though people are going to hate you for it. We should walk in that victory even though people are never going to appreciate you as you feel you should be appreciated. It's never going to happen. But we have that hope that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Can you rise up?